0: Welcome to Clearing the Haze, where we discuss the truth about vaping and key issues impacting the vapor industry. My name is Cynthia Cabrera, and I'm president of the Smoke-Free Alternatives Trade Association and your host for the show. Today we welcome David Sweener, a leading expert on tobacco control and public health issues. He has spent more than three decades trying to rid the world of cigarettes and has played an integral role in Canada's tobacco-related policies. David has worked with the World Health Organization, the World Bank, Pan American Health Organization, the International Union Against Cancer, and numerous governments and foundations. I'm also happy to say David is a friend. Welcome to the show, David.
1: Great to be with you, Cynthia.
0: So, you've been in tobacco control for quite some time. For people who may not know who you are, impossible. How did you get into the field?
1: Well, um, I guess it's uh, one of those other long stories or short, sh- short stories, but the, uh, the short version is that, you know, I trained as a lawyer. I've been very interested in public policy uh, since the get-go uh, and a whole broad range of, of areas of public policy. And, and on issues of, of health, like so many other things, that it's, it's one thing to figure out what's making people ill. I mean, that's a medical scientific question. But dealing with it, you know, solving the problem, is typically uh, uh, a legal uh, 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 sort of uh, intervention. It's a policy question. It's it's politicians that uh, that can make a difference. So, you know, as I said, the the big advances in in health don't come from incisions on an operating table, but decisions at a cabinet table. How do you influence that policy? How do we get uh, the sorts of policies that we need in order to change the landscape in such a way that we end up with healthier uh, populations, and essentially that 's what 's done it when we look at increases in life expectancy you know over the last century uh, only a very small part of that is from physician type services. The vast majority is from from policies on things like getting clean water you know other forms of sanitation, better nutrition uh, you know, working on really basic policy issues and smoking just struck me as a such an obvious one because. It you know, recognizes as our leading cause of preventable death. It's killing an extraordinary number of people. The World Health Organization estimates cigarette smoking will kill a billion people this century, and they're dying because of a really dirty delivery system. I mean, it's really, really simple, and you know, I, I like simple, simple things, uh, or at least it seems simple. Uh, you get rid of the smoke, you get rid of the problem. Well, that's a policy issue. How do you get rid of the smoke? How do you, how do we do smoking? So I got involved, uh, you know, as, as a volunteer in the Late 70s, I started working full-time on this stuff as a lawyer. I believe the first lawyer in the world working full-time and trying to reduce uh, smoking from an advocacy standpoint uh, by uh, 1983. And uh, I really thought in a few years we'll solve this one and I'll move on to more complicated issues. Only to find that, as usually happens, uh, lots of other people are standing in the way and making it harder to to accomplish things that should be pretty simple.
0: You have been labeled as a staunch supporter of the anti-smoking movement. But at the same time, you're also a proponent of vaping as a harm reduction strategy. Why do you think there's so much friction around vaping as it relates to harm reduction versus those who are advocating that these products are not actually a solution to smoking? Well,
1: I, I think the, uh, the the answer really comes from what's the motivation people have for, for what they're doing? and. Uh, and and it's, it's worth trying to think that through for the different players in something like this, because from a standpoint of public health, I mean, anything that we look at that, that causes some risk of death, injury or disease, there's four broad areas of intervention that we can use. And, and only four. I mean, it's just it, logically, that's it. Uh, we can do things to prevent people from ever ga- engaging in the dangerous activity. We can do things to get people who are engaging in it to stop. We can do things to protect third parties from that activity. And we can do things to reduce the risk for people who continue to engage in the activity. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about people playing, uh, deciding they want to play high school football or somebody sticking a needle in their arm or having sex with strangers or driving an automobile or using a nicotine product. It's all the same. Those are the four things you do. From a public health standpoint, you recognize that they all work synergistically. The, the sorts of things you would do in dealing with smoking, the the stuff you'd want to do to try to reduce onset or help people quit or reduce risk to third parties all tie into what can you do with the product itself to reduce risk. But if you're dealing with somebody who doesn't see this as a public health issue, that they see it as, as a moral issue, they see smoking as a form of sin or or treat it that way, um, they want an abstinence-only approach. And and it's very similar to what we've seen on other things, like the war on alcohol, you know, also known as prohibition, or the war on drugs, uh, the war on uh, uh, premarital sex, uh, abstinence-only campaigns uh, occupy the uh, the time of an awful lot of people uh, because of uh, moral issues that they have. Uh, they tend to be incredibly unsuccessful and, and indeed counterproductive from a health standpoint. But I think there's also people that simply have a bureaucratic mindset that people who are very risk-averse about what they might do. So there's sort of who would say, if I see a, if you see a drowning person and there's a life ring in front of you, well, yeah, you you, you should. Sh- throw it. But but then again, you know, what if I hurt my arm throwing it? What, what if I throw it too far and somebody blames me because it didn't reach the drowning person? Or what if it hits them on the head and knocks them unconscious? Or what if it hits an endangered species of fish and I'm held responsible for that? You, th- those are the people who are saying, you know, I know the right thing to do, but I can think of, you know, possibly totally implausible, but the may be possible things that can go wrong and therefore I'm going to oppose it. And I think there's also people who are just They've got their standing in the community based on the status quo. They don't want it wrecked, uh, And that's basic Thomas Kuhn stuff, structure scientific revolutions, that people have a certain buy-in on a paradigm. And if the paradigm is that, you know, we tell smokers what to do and they have to do it, they have to quit or they die, uh, and I'm a big deal in that community, uh, or I get funding doing that sort of stuff, they're, they're going to have a different view. So I think it's a matter of trying to understand where people are coming from in order to get an idea of where they're going.
0: So, do you think that's why there's a failure to distinguish between the smoke and cigarettes, which everyone knows is the leading cause of preventable deaths, and nicotine?
1: Yeah, I, I think that uh, that explains it. That if you've got somebody who's working in in public health, you you, you meet people where they are. Uh, you, you recognize that we all have foibles, and and our goal is is to reduce death, injury, and disease. It isn't to just tell people what to do. So whether it's their sexual behavior or their choice to drive an, an automobile or the sort of food that they decide to eat, uh, you do things like, say, you want the safest automobiles possible. You, you want to talk to people about safe sex practices. You, you want to ensure the hamburger is cooked properly. Um, but if, if people are coming at this from, from the standpoint of, of sin, uh, then the nicotine itself is the problem. Uh, just like you find with, with people who are opposed to alcohol. It isn't that they're opposed to alcohol that has a neurotoxin in it, things like you know, the, the infamous Jamaican Jake of Prohibition era. Uh, they're just opposed to alcohol for, from a moral standpoint. People who are opposed to, to people having sex outside of marriage don't like condoms because it might encourage that. You know, People who are opposed to any form of illicit drug certainly don't want to see safe injection sites or uh, uh, or, or clean needles being distributed. Uh, so it depends on the, uh, the orientation they have. And I think we have a, a significant problem in the uh, anti-smoking field that there are a lot of really good public health people, but there's also a lot of people who really see this as a fight against evil. Uh, and they see nicotine as evil, they see anything to do with nicotine as evil, and they certainly don't want to differentiate between their evils. And that makes it very very difficult to, uh, to actually get
0: public health measures through the, uh, the roadblocks that people like that create. You recently wrote about public health ethics as it relates to informing consumers about relative risk. Specifically what you said was omitting such health relevant information for consumers such as vapor products effectively blindfolds them and impairs their making informed personal choices. What are the public health effects of omitting comparative information? Is this a case of health organizations purposely withholding data or what you were just talking about, you know, an abstinence-only position? Well, I, I think the um, certainly they're withholding data. And in when we look at
1: uh, what's happening in this field, I mean, we know that the, the problem with smoking is the smoke. It isn't the nicotine. We know that you can get your nicotine in ways that are massively, massively less hazardous. That includes various forms of smokeless tobacco as, as well as what we see with vaping. And when we check with, with the public to find out what they know, you know they're horribly misinformed. So only about 12% of Americans believe that smokeless tobacco is less hazardous than smoking. I mean, it's massively less hazardous. Well, you know, why are they so misinformed? Why Why are ever more people believing that vaping, isn't safer than smoking, let alone understanding that it's massively less hazardous than smoking. Well, if you look for information on this, you, you get lots of misinformation. Uh, and that's what we're talking about in terms of a blindfold. People do not have the information they need to make an informed decision. And this is pretty basic in terms of you know just human rights, consumer rights. It's been talked about for a very long time in, uh, uh, in, in, in many areas. Robert Sereno wrote a wonderful book about it back around 1970 called Don't Blame the People. And the argument is people can only make as good a decision as the information available to them allows. And it is simply unfair to give people inadequate information to make an informed decision and then hold them responsible for having made a bad decision. And that's what we have now, where we're, we're not giving people the information necessary to be able to move from cigarettes to something else that will terrifically reduce their risk. And then we blame them when they get sick from smoking. Well, that's simply unfair, but we also know from the history of public health that many of our biggest breakthroughs, the, the things that have really increase life expectancy, come from two really, really simple concepts. You know, one, give people sufficient information to be able to make an informed decision, and two, give them the ability to act on that information. You know, So that's really like saying that you can get a car that doesn't kill you if you just happen to drive into a ditch, and here's where you can buy it, or you you can get uh, antibiotics to treat the condition you've got. Here's the prescription. There's the drugstore. You can get water that doesn't have crap in it, so you, you're not going to get dysentery, uh, et cetera. And it's it's available from your tap. Uh, and in this case, to say you can get what you want from your cigarettes, from alternative products, you are going to tremendously reduce your risk. Here's the sorts of products. Go to a vape shop. You know, to check them out. Uh, uh, try a smokeless tobacco product if you prefer. But these are the sorts of things that really cause a breakthrough. And we're not doing that. And that doesn't meet the really, really basic levels of ethics. And certainly public health ethics says that you have to work with people. You have to give them the information. You you work with the people whose lives you're trying to save as as partners. You meet them where they are. You, you empower them. And in this case, what we're doing is we're keeping information from them. We're blindfolding them. Uh, and anybody can check this out by... You know asking questions uh, on on the uh, websites of, of major uh, health and medical organizations, particularly in the united states it 's very different in the u k for instance uh, about the relative risks of cigarette smoking, smokeless tobacco, and vaping and what you 'll find is the more the uh, these websites you go to, the more likely you are to be more misinformed rather than less misinformed and it's the complete contrary on a lot of other issues so if you want to find out whether Wearing sunscreen is, is a good idea if you're uh, out, out on a sunny day, or whether wearing a, a seatbelt, or a life jacket if you're out in a boat, or using condoms if, if you're having sex with uh, with strangers, or you know, just on and on about uh, other things you can do to reduce your risk. And they're very straightforward in telling people truthful, accurate, actionable information about how you reduce your risk. You get to nicotine, and they actively misinform you. So we end up with these stats telling us that, that people are ever less informed, ever less likely to make the right sorts of of decisions uh, when they try to reduce their risks. And the result of that is a lot of people are dying, and they're dying entirely unnecessarily. They're dying in many cases because of taxpayer-funded organizations that are actively misleading them. And you simply can't justify that on any level of ethics, and they they need to have a light shone on this to, to try to justify what they're doing, which of course they can't, and therefore they need to change. They need to start telling people truthful, non-misleading information.
0: So from a public policy standpoint, by the way, you're blowing me away with this. I mean, it's just fascinating. Um, From a public policy standpoint, you're saying then that the potential effect of treating vapor products the same as combustible tobacco products is death?
1: Exactly. I mean, when, when we look at any interchangeable uh, products or activities where there's a huge differential in risk. Imagine what happens when we don't tell people about that. You know, imagine if you've got a land where people are getting their caffeine by smoking tea leaves and we decide we're not going to tell them that brewed coffee or brewed tea is a much safer way to get it. In fact, we're going to misinform them about it. You know, what happens? You know, more people smoke tea leaves, more people die from the diseases caused by it. If We don't distinguish between the risks of clean and dirty needles if we don't distinguish between the risk of automobiles that are made to uh, uh, safety standards uh, like we have today compared to the automobiles of 40 years ago or, say, between a modern automobile and a high-powered motorcycle with bald tires, faulty brakes uh, by a driver without a helmet. Uh, I mean, there there are huge risks. Uh, and in, in many activities and in many cases, we can significantly reduce them. So we don't say things like, If you want to dive into the swimming pool, that's up to you. You know, we often say this end of the pool is deep enough to dive into. If you dive into the other area, you will probably break your neck. And not distinguishing between those sorts of things, kill people. And when we don't tell people truthful, accurate, actionable information about our leading cause of preventable death, And we look at the stats and we can see they're horribly misinformed about this stuff. When you talk to to smokers, I I did at a a get-together last night, somebody who had been vaping, he switched from vaping back to smoking because he was trying to avoid getting cancer. I mean, how do you hear that without getting angry at the very groups who are misleading him, coming out with scare stories about electronic cigarettes? They are actively misinforming people in a way that greatly increases the likelihood of them having a premature death. How is that any different, you know, than telling somebody that cooking your hamburger or not cooking your hamburger really doesn't matter whether it's raw or whether it's cooked or sticking a dirty needle in your arm is no different than a clean needle or having sex with a stranger. Condoms are entirely optional. They really don't make any difference. I mean, you know, that's that's public health malpractice. And in most cases, we would call people out on that. Uh, they, they would certainly not be working in a public health field. Somehow in the area of nicotine, we've let a lot of of people who are out to fight dragons, people who are out to fight evil, people who see the world in black and white, absolutes, have somehow slipped in, brought that sort of ideology with them. And just as we've seen with other campaigns of absolutist morality, and Prohibition's a good example of it, uh, the historian Richard Hofstadter summed it up well in saying that these campaigns of absolutist morality almost invariably end up adding to the very problem they claim they're trying to end. And that's what we see with wars on approach. If you have a war on alcohol, you, you end up with far greater problems because of the sort of alcohol people are consuming. The war on drugs, you know, we're finally getting to the point of recognizing this has been really stupid. We should have had a public health approach. When you have a war on sex outside of marriage, the same sort of thing. A war on gay marriage or gay rights, the same sort of thing. And when you have a war on nicotine, you know, rather than saying, let's be practical here, we're trying to reduce death and disease. You know, this isn't about sin this is
0: about public health, we really get somewhere. Well, I understand what you're saying. And there are a lot of organizations that are trying to eliminate combustible cigarette use, right? Why can't we find the areas, or why can't they find the areas of potential agreement, you know, between both sides with regards to vaping?
1: Well, again, I think it comes down to where are they coming from? And, uh, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time trying to deal with this and, and finding that many people have a, I mean, as, as our species is, is prone to doing, uh, we, we, we pick a, a moralistic, you know, rapid response to something. We, we pick a side uh, based on ideology or uh, 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 personal repugnance. And then we use our intellect not to check on our, our views to decide whether they're good, but to try to justify the position we've already taken. And I think that's a problem we, we have in this field, that many people have decided they're opposed to anything to do with uh, with cigarettes. These are sort of like cigarettes, and therefore they'll oppose them. Those people aren't actively trying to reduce combustible uh, cigarettes. They're, they have a broader agenda, uh, one that doesn't make any public health sense. I think if you've got groups that are seriously looking at uh, reducing death and disease and therefore reducing uh, the use of combustible products, you can work with them, uh, and, and we see reasonable people looking at the evidence and changing their minds. And again, the UK is a really good example of this. Some of the, uh, the health organizations who were originally quite skeptical about things like vaping have become very favorable. But they're living in a land where you know, the enlightenment still seems to work. Uh, pe- people still think that they should be looking at the evidence, questioning their, uh, their judgments, uh, reforming their views the, uh, on the basis of new evidence. In lands where we don't get as much of that, with groups where we don't get that, I mean, we have people who are sort of getting, running all over the place to try to find more justification for a ridiculous position, more justification for what saying this has to be abstinence. You know, let's, let's ignore the neuroscience and why people use nicotine. Let's ignore the genetics. Let's ignore consumer choice. Let's ignore the stats on how many people are dying because of this. And let's just take an absolutist position. But I think, you know, as I said before, some of these people are, are not you know, simply raving moralists. Some of them are very bureaucratic, and all they're thinking of is, well, you know, over 400,000 Americans are going to die this year from cigarette smoking, and we could probably get them onto something that's way, way less hazardous, but, but wait a minute, what if I did this and it turned out there was something hazardous in this, and it was killing a couple of thousand people instead of 400,000 people, but I might be held responsible for that 2,000. I can't do that. Uh, there's also a tendency I've seen all through my career that many of the uh the anti smoking organizations like to do things as a coalition, and a coalition like a convoy only moves as fast as its slowest ship and If you have one person in that room who's an abstinence only person, a prohibitionist on on nicotine, they can't reach a consensus on doing something on risk reduction, so they move to something else you know so they decide we'll go work on you know, getting smoking out of movies or other various, uh, you know, silly, far less effective things, uh, because they're trying to get a consensus with with their coalition, rather than the sort of things that you know I had to do all through my career when we'd be dealing with with coalitions and saying many of them are totally out to lunch on stuff. We need to isolate those people, get them out of the coalition to move ahead, or say we're doing this anyway. Are you with us or against us? Uh, and uh, you, you need to work around those sorts of people rather than use them as a limitation. Because if you're just trying to get along with your colleagues and you include abstinence-only activists among your colleagues, then what you're doing is you're sacrificing the lives of other people. And that's not acceptable. You know That's not ethical. Far better that you, you really piss off some of the people that used to think you were their friend than that you let their moralistic views or bureaucratic risk-averse natures get in the way of doing things that save lives.
0: Yes, so it's, it's incredible the situation that we've got going on with, uh, with vaping and uh, risk reduction. And on a related note, right, and I know that a lot of the information that your friend, for example, or the person you saw the other night that switched back to cigarettes because he doesn't want to get cancer from vaping, he says. I mean, it's just it's absolutely horrifying and shocking. And, you know, time and again, we see abstracts for studies on vaping that doesn't match data in the study. And then we see press releases that further distort the facts. And these are the things that people are using to make decisions on, right? So we recently at Sofada developed a media checklist. It's available at sofada.org. And it supplies questions and comments that journalists should consider when they prepare their stories on vapor research. What do you think the media should be looking for when they're reporting on studies?
1: Well, I think one, really straightforward thing is, is context. You know, to, for somebody to say that I found a risk in something, I, I think there's two questions that, that need to immediately be addressed. Uh, is this risk actually of any significance to people in the way that they behave, uh, in, in the, the, what they're engaging in? So in the case of, of vaping, for somebody to say, you know, I found a certain risk if you use a product this way. Well, is it a way that anybody uses that product? You know, is it actually a risk as consumers use the product? Because simply talking about a risk in an abstract you know, isn't, is of no value. But then secondly, even if you found something that is a potential risk, how does that compare to the alternative? Because if I was saying that, you know, I just found that Volvos can cause cancer, wouldn't somebody want to know, well, how, how, how do they do that, Professor Sweeney? i say, well, if they eat the dashboard. Well, I'm not aware of anybody using a Volvo for the purpose of eating the dashboard, so it's not a risk to the people who are actually in the Volvo. But even if you found a risk that's in a Volvo, how does that compare to the risk of what else they might drive? Because if you still are dealing with a massively smaller risk by driving the Volvos and, say, having a high-powered dirt bike with the ball tires and the faulty brakes, uh, you need to, to, to put that in context so that people know. And in this case, we've got people talking about risks without talking about whether it's Actually, a risk to consumers in the way that they use these products and how that risk compares to cigarettes. And therefore, what they're saying is irrelevant other than the fact that it's a good example of misinformation. But I think we should also look at other things, uh, including vested interests. There's this tendency of many people in my field justifiably to to look at things uh, historically that were funded by cigarette companies um, and it distorted the views of the researchers. Well, in this case, you know, we've got major funding agencies, particularly in the United States, where their goal, their stated aim is a smoke-free America, and they include vaping as part of smoking, which is pretty odd given that there's no smoke coming out and there's no tobacco. Uh, and uh, sorry, and, and many of them go beyond that to say they want a tobacco-free America, like no form of tobacco at all, including vaping. And they're funding people. Well, if they want a tobacco-free America, that's an abstinence-only goal. How on earth are you going to get funding from them if you're talking about relative risks? I mean, that's important to know. So if the National can- uh, Na- National uh, Institutes of Health, National Cancer Institute, the Centers for Disease Control, etc., are having this tobacco-free America view, well, of course the research is going to come out uh, with, with, with biases in it because people are going to be doing the sorts of stuff and be funded. But we'd also have to say, are they getting funded or do they have an interest in pharmaceutical products and might see these things as... Uh, as, as a competitor, are they? Do they have a, a vested interest in the cigarette status quo? Are they the people who are tied into uh, the cigarette business in one way or the other? Uh, are they people who are simply anti-cigarette but blindingly stupid? In that, many of these uh, the attacks on vaping are coming from people saying, "I don't like cigarette companies." and these are people who have no idea the vaping industry is way beyond anything that cigarette companies are making. The vast majority of the products are not coming from cigarette companies. Vaping is a tremendous threat to cigarette companies. Can you finally try to understand this field to say, when you're attacking vaping, you're protecting the cigarette business. You're not, you're not doing anything to attack it. So you know, there's all sorts of things that are going on that are influencing people, but I would want the, the media to be questioning of these people the same way as they would question anybody in in the old days speaking on behalf of the Tobacco Institute, you know, the tobacco industry lobbying organization. They've got vested interests. Let's understand what they are. Uh, in many cases, you know, I, I think I've got many colleagues who are simply deferring to their tribe. You know, they, they feel that you can't work in this field and say things that might get other people in the field mad at you. So if everybody else is saying vaping's a terrible thing, you better say vaping's a terrible thing too. And I think lastly, I would say to the uh, the media that You know, the Enlightenment was a really great idea, and uh, we we, we should get back to that sort of thinking. Uh, You should question. uh, You should look for evidence. If somebody's making a statement, there should be some some decent evidence backing up that statement. If they don't have that, call them out on it. Because if they're simply engaging in pre-Enlightenment-type thinking, you know, based on a belief, and we see a tremendous amount of this in the uh, anti-vaping research then it's not really research, it's not really science, it's just, you know, somebody may as well be telling you that, uh, uh, you know, what, what their, um, uh, their religious views are, that, you know, that's different than, uh, than what we should be seeing coming from science. We don't need this pre-enlightenment sort of stuff that gets us into trouble. We need to think these
0: things through, we need, we need to be rigorous on the science. I You know, it's so exciting to hear somebody, you know, talking about rational thought and logical thinking and, and critical thinking. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinated, fascinating. I, I saw something this morning, and uh, it was a doctor who made a comment, and essentially the comment was, "You just, it's impossible to believe that anyone has moved over from smoking combusted cigarettes to vapor because there are big tobacco companies that own vapor products. That was the correlation, and I thought, oh, my God, logic has just gone out the window entirely. So I'm really thrilled to hear you always. Uh, so listen, one final question. What are you working on now, and how can we follow what you're doing? Uh, well,
1: Sylvia, I actually work on all sorts of things, So, um, on um, uh, all of which I, I do pro bono these days because I'm just really interested in a whole lot of issues of, of health policy. Uh, so... There's uh, many things I'm doing on on issues of tobacco and nicotine, trying to uh, to get good policy, trying to uh, to point out that, for instance, the United Kingdom is is doing some quite sensible things on this, uh, on the basis of of strong science. And the science doesn't change when you cross the Atlantic Ocean. So if you've got people in North America who are doing stuff that doesn't seem consistent with what people are doing on, on the basis of good science, we need to question it. I want to facilitate that. When we're talking about nicotine itself, I want to get out better information about the, the effects of nicotine, the fact that nicotine does a lot of good things for a lot of people. Nicotine is going to be with us for a long time. I'm not particularly concerned about nicotine, just like I'm not particularly concerned about caffeine, unless it's coming from a dirty delivery system. So how do we get more understanding of this, to get people to actually pay attention to the neuroscience involved in terms of why people would use nicotine, the genetics behind that, uh, the idea that many people just enjoy what they're getting, and uh, you know, comparisons with, with what we see with other activities is, is really valuable. But I, I continue to be interested in, uh, in many other things. So uh, I'm, I'm involved in um, promoting or at least funding people who are involved in, in things to promote uh, physical activity, better urban planning, uh, dealing with crazy incarceration policies in places like the United States, uh, illicit drug harm reduction, a uh, whole range of things. And, uh, you know, I, I often realize that my, my list of pet topics would require more time than my life expectancy is ever likely (laughs) to give. Uh, So I try to facilitate other people doing this this sort of work uh, on areas of tobacco and nicotine as as well as other things. And, I mean, we really can make a difference. You know, the stuff I've seen in my my own career in reducing smoking is phenomenal. We could do way better than that if we'd simply get rational about what we're doing, use the good ethical principles and, and work with consumers rather than against them. And we could do the same thing. On a whole range of other topics, so I think it's huge. You know, when we look at the gains in life expectancy in the last hundred years globally, you know, we, we we've increased life expectancy about, by about 35 years um, per person uh, uh, worldwide. We've got over seven billion people on the planet, so you know, so, so what do we got? 200 uh, billion years of additional life expectancy. You know, I mean, it's it's enormous. And where would we get the next 10 billion years of collective life expectancy? You know, we can do that through public health measures. You know, where where can we add extra years to people's life? It's through public policy measures. And we can do it on a whole range of things. We need to get people fired up about this. And we need to get consumers involved. Because when people are being misled, when people are dying, getting sick, entirely unnecessarily, there ought to be rage. And we've got to get people to rage about this because that's the way you start to get to solutions to some of these problems. So I think one of the
0: things I'll be doing is encouraging more rage. I love it. I think it's great. And I'm glad that you're on the side of good. Uh, David, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you on the show. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. You can visit safada.org to download this podcast as well as any past shows You can also get our top 10 vapor facts, demystifying misconceptions about the vapor industry. And please remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Until our next show, this is Cynthia Cabrera. Thank you for listening.